0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today?
1: You're not interested in art? No. Now,
0: look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have
1: a
2: conversation.
3: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempenar. And I'm Josh Larson.
0: It was one of those days where it's a minute away from snowing, and there's this electricity in the air. You can almost hear it. Right? And this bag was just. Dancing with me.
1: Does anything bring you back to 1999 more than American Beauty's dancing plastic bag? I see dead people. I know Kung Fu and Ricky Fitz's plastic bag. That's 99 at the movies in a nutshell. This week on the show, we return to our 9 from 99 series, taking another look at director Sam Mendez's divisive Best Picture winner. And we kick off our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon with 2010's Let the Bullets Fly. All that and more. Ahead on Film Spotting.
3: You're listening to Film Spotting. So, with our Nine from 99 series, we've been spending the year periodically revisiting some of the key films of what really is one of the best movie years ever, 1999. We're going to get to our discussion of American Beauty here in a moment. Josh, are you primed for
1: a real heated takedown of this film? Well, I will say this has mostly been a celebration yes. of nineteen ninety nine so far in this series. The party may be over. Okay.
3: Can't wait for that. Also, my conversation with Godfrey Cheshire, author of the new book, Conversations with Kiristami. Cheshire's book is a companion to a comprehensive tour of the great Iranian director Abbas Kiristami's films that is currently playing at Chicago's Gene Siskel Film Center. That series runs through the end of the month and There's more. Later in the show, we will get to Jiang Wen's Let the Bullets Fly.
1: It's the first film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. But first, there's nothing worse in life than being ordinary, at least according to American Beauty.
2: What the hell do you think you're doing?
0: We're having everyone write out a job description. That way, management can assess who's valuable and who's expendable.
2: Parents are trying to take an active interest in me. Why can't they just have their own lives? I am so proud of you. You didn't screw up
3: once. Oh my God. It says psycho next door.
0: Jane, what if he worships you? I didn't mean to scare you. I'm not obsessing. I'm just curious.
1: Why does he dress like a Bible salesman?
0: Today I quit my job. <laughs> and then I blackmailed my boss for almost $60,000 past these prayers. Your
1: dad's actually kind of cute. I think he and your mother have not slept together in a long time.
0: Shut up. You think you're the only one who's frustrated. I'm not? Well then, come on, baby, I'm ready. Welcome to America's weirdest home videos.
3: Finally, a real 9 from 99 reckoning. Our Sacred Cow reviews and series such as this one are opportunities for us to revisit and reappraise movies that usually neither of us have seen since their original release. We go in open to a completely fresh experience, of course, but through six films so far, while there have been some new insights and interpretations, there haven't been any real surprises. The Matrix, Sixth Sense, Eyes Wide Shut, pretty great in 99, pretty great in 19. But none of our previous entries can claim the highs and lows that Sam Mendes' directing debut American Beauty can. Going from critical and commercial success, it was the 13th highest grossing film of the year, and best picture prestige to cultural pariah. A recent HuffPost article charts its downward trajectory from esteemed suburban satire to widespread punchline. We'll link to the article in our show notes for those who are curious, but this graph offers perhaps the tidiest retrospective indictment. As deeper understandings of sexual abuse, income inequality, and gender imbalances have come to dominate the national consciousness, American Beauty has been stamped out in conjunction. When actor Anthony Rapp accused Kevin Spacey of sexually harassing him at age 14, the Lester Burnham parallels were glaring. And when other Hollywood men were exposed as power-hungry deviants who preyed on young women, the image of Angela as one guy's private reverie became a token of unchecked ghoulishness. Art faded to artifice. It's difficult these days to care about poor Lester Burnham, white, affluent, smug, miserable, and creepily lusting after a high school bombshell played by Mena Suvari. It's even harder to care about the man portraying Lester Burnham. But back in 99, when Lester, sitting at the dinner table with his wife and daughter, proclaimed, I am sick and tired of being treated like I don't exist. You two do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, and I don't complain. I heard the frustrations of my own father, who would have been just a few years older than Lester at the time. Lester's malaise, his disillusionment with his career and relationships, with the seeming hopelessness of ever being the man he once showed the promise of being, resonated with boomer men. Just as boomer women, like my mom, juggling full-time careers and the bulk of dinner-making and child-raising, surely saw some of themselves in Annette Benning's epically high-strung and taken-for-granted Carolyn. But it wasn't all boomers who fell under the spell of Alan Ball's snappy, anti-materialist screenplay, Conrad Hall's rose petal embellished cinematography, and Thomas Newman's hypnotic score. There are a legion, like listener Brian Shea from Reading, Connecticut, who wrote in, Saying, look, I will be completely honest about this. I have not watched American Beauty since everything came to light with Kevin Spacey. The last time I watched it was probably 2010 or 2011. I know it is a divisive film in terms of people's opinion on it, but for me, it holds a special place in my heart because the first time I watched it was the first time I realized that I truly enjoyed films as a medium for making commentaries on larger themes instead of only as entertainment. I'm quite a bit younger than the two of you, I think. I first saw American Beauty in the fall of 99 when I was 16. Now, let's not get carried away. He's not quite a bit older, no. Josh. He saw it in a small hole-in-the-wall movie theater with my father. Brian writes, I had dragged him there after I would seen the trailer and decided that I had to see this movie because it looked so much deeper than most of the movie fare I was used to at that point. I can still remember walking out of the theater feeling like I had really experienced something. And while I could not for the life of me put my finger on what that something was... I knew I loved it. The final moments of the movie had brought me to tears, not something uncommon for me at movie theaters, but still, and I looked to my dad and thanked him for bringing me, at which point he told me he hated it. I've learned <laughs> over the years that movies that attack the American dream are just not my dad's sort of thing, but anytime this movie comes up, he will always say how much he despises it so much for my boomer men theory throughout the 2000s. Brian continues. Every time I watched it, I found myself inspired by its message that I couldn't let myself slip into a humdrum ordinary life. And that I had to take more chances. This message is what led me to give internet dating a try and thus finding my wife. It's what led me to think longer and harder about what I wanted to do in my life and what would actually make me happy. Even now, not having seen the movie in years, I think about Lester reminiscing on his life and the gratitude he had for every moment of it. What I'm trying to say is the movie is an important one to me. And while I know there are perfectly legitimate criticisms of it, I know there are others who love the movie as well, and I hope their view gets heard when you review the movie. Josh, forget any snarky comments you might have about the ecstasy of a plastic bag blowing in the wind musings offered by Lester's pot-selling 18-year-old neighbor Ricky. The most brutal line in the movie undoubtedly occurs during Lester's opening voiceover when he says, My name is Lester Burnham. This is my neighborhood. This is my street. This is my life. I am 42 years old. When we last saw American Beauty, we watched it through the eyes of our fathers. Now we're the fathers, both of us older than 42. I mean, I haven't caught you pumping iron in the garage or rushing out anytime soon to get your version of 1970 Firebird. I was thinking about this today. I'm pegging you as maybe a Fiat guy.
1: A Fiat? Yeah. Uh, I'm still dreaming of a Fiat. It might happen for me someday. (laughs) But you do wear weird colored pants sometimes. Weird? Does your current personal perspective,
3: override the current cultural perspective on American beauty and even the negative one you had back in 99. Can you help Brian out and voice some support for the movie's impact as an inspiring and important movie then and now? Or is American beauty's greatest sin that it only feels important and you're going to prove to us how much you rule with your list of what I'm certain will be perfectly legitimate criticisms?
1: There is no way I'm older than Lester Burnham. (laughs) I don't care it's how truth, old man. I get. It's the hard. <laughs> truth. Holy cow. Deal with it. That did hit quite hard uh, when he announces that at the beginning. I think, of course, it it alters my perception of this movie. I would say not in a good way. Um, and this isn't fun. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you included Brian's thoughts because when you don't like a movie, even if you know you have some – a fair amount of critical support on your side – I also know in this case there are people who love this movie, loved it then, love it now, and I can see why it would be something of a formative film because it is daring in a lot of ways. Um, It'll make you sit up in your seat if you've mostly been watching what Brian described as entertainment. It has ideas on on its mind, absolutely. So I get all that, understand all that, and can see why someone might still like American Beauty. Um, I gave it a shot and hoped I could move in that direction, but – I am afraid being this age has not helped, uh, I think, in a couple of ways. I thought the decks were stacked in this movie when I saw it as a 20-something I must have been and you know, was not living in the suburbs or experiencing anything like what Lester Burnham has experienced. Now, having lived in the suburbs for a while, being – A middle-class father having a couple teenage daughters yes you you see you know how the the decks are stacked even higher in this movie again in its favor against this family against and i'm not saying yes the suburbs can be incredibly stifling i understand that marriage is difficult family life is difficult there are low points but from the very beginning of this film no one in this movie has a shot of making it out, we're on a clear trajectory toward a tragic, air quotes, tragic miserableism finale. Yeah. And there are two hypocrisies at work here because of that. One of them I recognized in 1999, and it has to do with the Angela character and how that's handled. Maybe we can return to that. Um, we will. I recognized some hypocrisy there before I had any idea about Kevin Spacey's off screen. Life Uh, That still bothers me today and it would no matter what has happened with Spacey. But the secondary hypocrisy does have to do with the depth element here and the idea element. And this film, American Beauty, does seem – the deeper it tries to get, the shallower it appears to me, and it has to do with that beauty element. I really like the plastic bag. Um, I'm not going to make fun of the plastic bag. It's the most arresting moment in this movie where Ricky Fitz shows this video of a bag dancing in the wind for 15 minutes and he describes how there's beauty there. Mm -hmm. And um, finding beauty in the mundane is something he does. That is a very profound idea of, of being able to find glory in the gutter, let's say. And I think it's a complete red herring in American Beauty. I think you get instances of it in the Ricky Fitz character, but the movie is mostly interested in the gutter. It's mostly interested in the misery and punishing all of these characters, except perhaps Lester. Um, and really, even though it tries to tack on, tries to connect him to You're that, say beauty. Lester isn't punished. He's, At the end of this film, as much as a martyr is punished, I don't think he's nearly punished as much as Carolyn is. I, I want to spend some time on how uh, the Carolyn character is depicted. Going as to well. get to continue her life and make choices. Lester is a martyr here. He's a glorified martyr. Um, There's a the tragic that, element for certainly. the choices that he's made, and I I think that's different than the sort of punishment. And I'm not saying I need punishment what I'm saying is there's too much punishment in this movie. It's curious to me that Lester is the one who does not get any of it to my mind and Hmm. all the other characters essentially are punished. Um, But they do get, they try to make this connection. The the script tries to make this connection in the epilogue um, with the beauty and Lester's experience that completely falls flat to me. It's not there. It wasn't there anywhere else in the movie. Um, I, I would much, I would have preferred, you know, two hours of a, dancing plastic bag in the wind well i will say jumping ahead
3: a little bit i wish that i had felt a stronger connection between lester's musings on beauty at the end and what it's trying to tie it back to with ricky but i'll start with sam set the table for this potentially being a double film spotting pile on with our newsletter this week right he posted a screen grab from our show Slack where I had a comment. I said something like that I was trying to enjoy American beauty on the level of a really expensive looking sitcom. Now, the only trouble with that is Sam posted that and I posted it in Slack after only watching the first 45 minutes of it. I watched this over two nights. I know you love it when I break films up, Josh. But it turns out I kind of did watch two different movies. It sounds like you watched what I saw in the first 45 minutes. And in those first 45 minutes, I knew there was no way I wasn't going to be sitting here right now across from you just trashing this movie. And I'll get into it. I stand by the sitcom comment. I mean it totally pejoratively. Everyone is an absurd caricature of modern suburban life. There's not a real person to be found. Let's meet the quirky next door neighbors, the disciplinarian husband played by Chris Cooper, who always introduces himself as Marine Colonel. Allison Janney is the beleaguered. Catatonic yeah. mom, the brooding voyeur Ricky and his video camera that's always going. And for me, honestly, even worse than them are stars, Lester and Carolyn. There are two for me standout performances in this movie that we'll get into. Neither of them are the ones that got Oscar nominations and Kevin Spacey won the Oscar. Their performances for me are at times pitched so shrilly that there are parts I find almost. Unwatchable. Spacey's less piercing, more smug, certainly less piercing. But he's so insistent on playing emasculated. He cowers in those dinner table scenes. He's hunched over like a little boy being reprimanded by mommy as if we didn't get the point. And Benning, who I love as an actress, she's so furiously animated and agitated in this role. She can't listen or react to anything that anyone else is saying to her without twitching and gasping and scowling. She has a breakdown right before her open house where she closes the blinds. She's done all this furious scrubbing, told herself how she's going to be a success and she's going to sell this house. And she just starts weeping. And it's meant to be a moment where we really sympathize with a character who up to that point really hasn't been sympathetic at all. And I didn't buy it for a second. I wasn't on her side. I recognize that mileage may vary here because there is certainly a comedic bent to this movie and to these performances, a satiric element. So some exaggeration should be at play. Here's where the, in the performances comparison makes sense yeah, to me. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and our producer, Sam, who if you're looking for a full on defense of this film, four star review on Letterboxd. And he had a wonderful observation about this, a wonderful counter to what I'm saying, which was. One of the pleasures of the movie is watching a gay man, Alan Ball, the screenwriter, exact revenge on straight Hollywood for decades of gay cliché by presenting the straight world in the same hysterical register usually reserved for gay characters. Meanwhile, the most normal characters in the film are the neighborhood gay couple. And Sam's dead on. I I do love that scene where they they come over, the gay couple, to introduce themselves and do the housewarming moment with – Colonel Fitz, and you realize they are. They're the only non hysterical people in this film. So, all that said, I still found Spacey and Benning mostly completely annoying and overdone. The cinematography and the production design was striking to me here, mostly when underscoring the drabness of Lester's life, that workplace, that office he goes to. It's so nondescript and boring that you can't imagine sitting there for five minutes, much less five days a week. And his boss's office, the way it's lit, everything about that space seems so hollow and so sterile. And I got one more, Josh, as I'm piling on my list of perfectly legitimate criticisms, the Thomas Newman score. And this is one criticism perhaps not fair to the movie, but it's been so often imitated and appropriated over time that it sounded instantly dated and obnoxious to me. And... Mm -hmm. It's overemployed. Just one example, and this is after the first 45 minutes, but there's a lunch conversation that happens between Carolyn and Buddy, played by Peter Gallagher. He's the real estate mogul that she aspires to be and, and develops a relationship with. Second and great pair of eyebrows in this movie. <laughs> Who's the first? Wes Bentley. Oh, of course. I mean, come on. Of course. Well, I don't know that he can top Peter Gallagher. Great eyebrow but movie. they're just having a conversation and they're actually kind of making a connection. And those damn marimbas are just distractingly twinkling away the entire time. I really couldn't stand it. But here's the thing. All a build up to that but, Josh. A funny thing happens once Ricky becomes more of the focus of the movie. And Lester and Carolyn actually recede a little bit. The comic intensity dials back. The movie becomes grounded enough that you start taking this world in through Ricky's eyes. And I'll include the camera eye there, too, as it's basically permanently attached to him. Eyes that, as Wes Bentley plays it, are sorrowful, yet hopeful. They're intense and they're unblinking, but they're, they're calm and they're steady and they're always seeking. And that perspective and that perspective shift is what saves American beauty for me, because then it isn't just about the things you're talking about, the easy kind of suburban cynicism and disillusionment. It's actually about reckoning with the world as it is and your place in it. I think that's what people like Brian latched onto at 16. And it's what i latched onto for dear life but what i latched
1: onto, even now so where was the break actually like where did, do you remember like what what sort of scene where you i'll Just think it. about it because okay. i'll remember yeah i know what wes bentley is and that character and as i said his observations i think what he says about that plastic bag is incredibly moving no matter what he what he's pointing to to evoke that sentiment to express that sentiment and even the way it's written the way the, the description of the air you know i think it's just before it snows or something mm-hmm. like that is what he's describing it that is very evocative stuff that gets it some real ideas um and i'm behind that i wish i could have latched onto it enough where it could have carried me through the rest of the film's concerns but i do only see it in ricky essentially and the connection from ricky to the rest of the characters in what is really an ensemble movie spreads out to become an ensemble movie in a lot of ways is just incredibly thin and connecting them trying to connect them at the end exposes that for me so i i, I just think there are too many other attributes that still remain truly bothersome to me about this film and and the, the formal elements I would say, did not trouble me as much as they did you. I I know what you mean by the score because Mm -hmm. it is somewhat familiar. And I think that also lends something of a sitcom notion to it, which I don't mean as an insult to sitcoms. It's just an aesthetic um, sensibility that this movie does have. Mm -hmm. Um, And the score is part of that. I think Conrad Hall's cinematography, for example, the use of the flower petals, the red rose petals, is still really – effective as this symbol of a couple of things angela the menesivari character of course but also i think just the possibility of something more beyond this stifling universe that this family has created for themselves now i do wish that mendes had maybe trusted the imagery of those petals a little bit more and gone all the way and just used them as a symbolic substitute entirely for angela In the fantasy sequences, because we do get a number. I think there's like three major fantasy sequences between that Lester has Mm -hmm. with Angela. And it involves both Suvari, the actress and the pedals. And I wonder if it might have been more powerful to just use Hmm. those pedals. It certainly might have gotten away um, from some of the troubling elements about those scenes that, as I said, that's the other level of hypocrisy. Can we jump to how Angela? Okay. though I got
3: more to say about the color red. Should well, we hit on that first? Well, let, Because, I mean, talk about Mendes in terms of maybe over that as yeah, well. I By the time we get to the end of the film, it goes from becoming – it goes from being the symbol you talked about to something else entirely. It as could some, mean anything. It, it really could mean anything. Yeah. And in their final conversations, the ones between Angela and between Lester – the roses are in a vase on a yes. credenza or whatever and they're every, literally yeah. in every shot yes and then we get the red door and we get bending in a red dress this is this is another movie from 99 that really relies on red as yep. sort of an ominous color the sixth sense being the other one and not only that of course we know as soon as we see the the white
1: wall we know exactly what what color yes. is going to be splattered all over it right yeah so that's relied on way too heavily i I would agree. But but when I talked about the use of this beauty theme as one level of hypocrisy, in other words, the, the movie, though it expresses it beautifully in a single moment, otherwise works completely at odds with it. So when Lester first sees Angela at uh, – she's a cheerleader performing with his daughter played by Thora Birch. I don't think we've said yet. Um, it's one of the – instigating or motivating incidents towards him, essentially rebelling. Um, And things get tricky here because you're right. We can sympathize with Lester. He is browbeaten in ways he doesn't entirely deserve, both at work and at home. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he acts out in response to that. And there are a couple different levels of acting out. There's quitting his job. There is um, meeting Ricky and starting to smoke weed with him. And there is – Maybe not pursuing yet, but certainly lusting after Angela. And the movie sort of sees these all as moral equivalencies, um, ways that he legitimate ways for him to rebel. And that may be okay if this, if the movie really wanted to trouble us, really wanted to unsettle us. Um, But it backs away from that, and here's where the hypocrisy comes. that climactic long elongated climactic sequences where a number of things are happening in this one house at the same time that are kind of unbelievable, but it is the seduction scene between Lester mm-hmm. and Angela, and after a fair amount and letterously depicted sexual activity between them, I think that's something else that you know we're more careful of or aware of is how the camera is depicting an event like this. It's very much from Lester's predatory point of view at um, this seduction scene just when you are concerned and being challenged with how far this is going to go and starting to think like well what if, if i've been cheering him along this whole time in buying the car in quitting his job um what does this mean now and things could get really troubling it gives him that escape hatch she says she's a virgin and all of a sudden like that lester turns chivalrous and for me the the most Disturbing scene in the movie it might be that brief one immediately afterwards where he's making her a snack in the kitchen and she's you know wearing a blanket around her like she's a child as if he's suddenly become this protective hero. Now, I'm not trying to make this a black and white thing. That's why I'm using the term hypocrisy. For American Beauty to really unsettle us, it might have gone there. Instead, in this one area, it provides that escape hatch hmm. for Lester that – sucks a lot of the subversion out of it for me. I'm not saying I wanted to see him follow through, but does that make sense? Yeah, it it, it makes sense.
3: I don't agree with really any of it. That's not how I saw really the the end of this film. And I would say that I'm not sure I'm willing to make any kind of distinction or do I think the movie is making a distinction in terms of legitimacy. I think he's very clearly whether you really sympathize with him or not or, or how much you look down on him. You have to see him as as a man in crisis. And every single one of those acts of rebellion is reflective of that crisis. So I don't I don't think the movie favors or disfavors any one of them over another. Now,
1: that's my point. Yeah,
3: they're all bundled up together. Well, so then Until I, I think it's get complicated, here. and and I'm fine with that. And I, I think that you know this this gets to something I really did want to get into because almost every film in this nine from ninety nine series has had one of those moments for each of us where the movie isn't what we remembered. You know, We talked about it with being John Malkovich a little bit, just yeah. as simple as not remembering that Malkovich was as much of a character in the movie as he was. This actually is at the heart of my real revelation with this film. The one aspect of it that wasn't at all as I recalled it was how little time after a certain point the movie devotes to Lester's lust for Angela. After about that 45-minute mark, when I talked about the movie really giving the movie over to to ricky and jane really and that that family dynamic a lot there's no doubt that the sexual fantasy is what sparks lester's transformation if you will like you touched on it but but that that same point where ricky and jane become the focus angela also kind of disappears as an object of lust for lester the character doesn't because she still comes into play in terms of being part of that dynamic with ricky and jane but she doesn't come around as jane even points out at one point you know, you were so creepy. I stopped asking her to come over. So she kind of disappears. And yet the things that he's doing ostensibly to impress her, none of those things stop, right? The car, the fitness, the self-improvement, those are all part of his rebellion that – When I recalled the film, I thought it was all about Angela and that he was actively pursuing her in a way that we really just don't see in the film. It's really more him rebelling against his wife and against society or whatever we want to consider normalcy and complacency. But there is nothing for a good hour of this film that he actively does to chase Angela. That was a surprise for me. And that, that actually brings me to the scenes you're talking about and the other standout performance for me. Wes Bentley being the first mm-hmm. standout performance in this film. But the other big shock here was how good Mena Suvari is. She's in very good. This film. She's playing, like everyone in this film, a certain level of comedy. She easily could have played this as a, a high school mean girl type and been very broad and very con- Cartoonish, And that's not what we get at all. Not only does she avoid that, but I think she's powerful and she's playfully intimidatingly at times seductive. But there's a a vulnerability to her and a fragility that comes through even before she confesses that she's not this worldly woman that she's been projecting. And we get the sense that there's a role that she's kind of been designated to play by society, a role that to an extent she's accepted. Certainly. But she's just as boxed in and as lonely as everybody else we've been seeing in this film. And over the course of those two scenes with Lester, I think those are really the best scenes in the movie. She becomes one of the more heartbreaking characters, certainly one of the more sympathetic and complex characters in the movie, the the living room, the kitchen, those scenes, because there's not a single false moment for Suvari, I think, in the
1: entire movie, but especially really in those two, those two difficult scenes. I think that's why I – suggested it might have been better to only use the rose petals in the fantasy sequences because I think those sequences are the ones where she does not struggle, but it's it's not as convincing trying to play this imagined version in Lester's head because every other sequence she's in, I agree she's fantastic. She's better as you know a real is? woman, not uh, not the fantasy. Exactly. And yeah. she's she's hysterically funny. Mm-hmm. I mean she hits this is this is maybe the sitcom character who hits the bullseye in what the movie wanted, was trying to achieve. And, yeah. and the tone is just right in the way that she's incredibly funny playing this girl who, yes, is trying to play a role, play a part, um, going 110 miles per hour when she's doing it. Serious.
3: He just pulled down his pants and yanked it out. You know, like say hello to Mr. Happy.
1: Gross. It wasn't gross,
3: it was kind of cool. So did you do it with him? Of course I did. He's a really well-known photographer. He shoots for L on like a regular basis. It would have been so majorly stupid of me to turn him down. You are a total prostitute. Hey, that's how things really are. You just don't know because you're this pampered little suburban chick. So are you. You've only been in 17 once and you look fat, so stop acting like you're goddamn Christy Turlington.
0: I'm so sick of people taking their
1: insecurities out of me. She's very good. I would also agree with you that she's good in the kitchen scene, but she's the only good thing in it. She, she manages a note. It's the it's the framing. It's It's the conception of that scene alone that is very troublesome. And in the previous scene in the living room, I do think she's good there. And you do see she's her really break good. down and drop yeah. that act. But... That's one positive element in a scene that, otherwise, as I said, the camera is used in a predatory manner, and this is something that, you know, for me out outweighs what's going on, and to see the juxtaposition of Lester again going Mm -hmm. from that to the guy frying something up nicely in the kitchen is just the the movie can't have it both ways. Yes. And and that that having it both ways didn't bother me. I think it's because I really
3: saw him in the moment. And I think this is a moment where Spacey actually is at his best in this film. It is in that revelation moment where we actually see him. It's almost as if he's woken up from a spell. It almost as if in that moment, he does hear something that triggers something in him that does immediately change the perception he's had for the past few days, weeks or whatever it's been. And, and I bought that. I bought that in that moment that, that
1: Spacey gives us there. You didn't obviously, no, but I, I did. And so we see a different, we see a completely different Lester in the kitchen. But we I do. get it because we want that moment too. Like that's the Lester we want to see. Um, and so in a sense, I understand why the movie is giving it to us. It's just for me at odds with what it was giving yeah. us.
3: And I, I do think as much as I'm on board with his I suppose, redemption there in that moment. I think the reversal is a little bit too severe. I think it's a little bit too sentimental even. And I'm thinking of the moment, the tragic moment that that really leads up to, we haven't really talked about him yet, Chris Cooper's Colonel Fitz coming in. We don't actually see him in that moment. That's another thing, actually, I should say that I completely forgot. I forgot that it was any type of surprise or that there was misdirection at all with regard to who actually shoots Lester Burnham. I forgot that they'd set up that whole subplot, and it's, it's, it's clunky. There's a lot of clunky plotting here, but they set up that whole idea of her going to shoot the gun at the range and have that breakdown at the side of the road when it's raining, and she can't wait to fire that gun, and she's not going to be a victim anymore, all to make us believe that maybe she's the one who pulled the trigger.
1: Yeah, and I, and I fell for it, too. And there was a certain point, because it does go on for so long, that I'm thinking, did I misremember this, and did someone else actually kill him um and but i think that is you know that's part where it's it feels awkwardly prescribed and eventually contrived to kind of where the cooper character <sighs> eventually it's like he's only in the movie right. for this well, one very specific yeah. contrived how about the
3: contrivance of you want to talk about sitcom plotting the contrivance of even getting to that moment by looking through the windows and seeing what he believes is some kind of exactly. sexual transaction exactly between his son and lester and it's just it's it's Comically, and I think unintentionally comically
1: bad. So let's get back to Carolyn if we can. Um, And this goes uh, back to my idea of of everyone else in this movie. Not everyone else. I think the movie is – has sympathy for Jane, the Thora Birch character, has sympathy um, for Ricky as well, the Wes Bentley character and for good reason. They're very – interesting and i have sympathy for them as well um but man does carolyn get thrown under the bus here and mm-hmm. i guess the transition you talked about in scene in lester from that those first 45 minutes or so you watched yeah. and then where he went later um i carolyn think it's about the never... moment real quick too when when he
3: gets high with ricky it's right after that outside the, the yeah. uh in the alley. okay yeah
1: yeah it, I, I just don't feel like carolyn is given that sort of room, and maybe it's not her movie. You know, that, so you could say that. Like, it starts with Lester's voiceover. So, but but I do wish the film had a little bit more space for understanding her. I agree with you. The moment, the earlier moment, mm-hmm. leaning against the blinds, crying. I given don't think her other breakdown works either. Given everything else film. that happened. I read that as comedy. You know, it was supposed to be we – we're yeah. supposed to be laughing at how distraught mm-hmm. she was. And I don't think that changes. And you mentioned at one point um, – or maybe it was one of the, the reviews or the comments you were quoting how this is an anti-materialist film. Um, again, it's just – it's the way – it is for some people and not for others. There's that scene, which we've referenced a few times, Lester saying, I rule. It's, it's a very compelling – scene. Mm -hmm. Um, But Annette Benning is completely thrown under the bus there. Carolyn is in a couple of ways. He is being challenged about the car he just bought. Right. She has she comes in. Sits down on the couch and they have what could have been a really nice moment. Here's where it's like the movie just wants things to be miserable because it could have just turned this scene a little bit differently where Lester tries to dis- seduce her. Says, you know, right. Jane is not home. He sits by the couch. He starts saying something about, do you remember how things used to be between us? Remember us her from the past? Yeah. She starts to to loosen, to weaken, to wilt a little bit. And then she notices he's got a beer in his hand. He's about to spill spill it on the couch. On the $4,000 couch. On the $4,000 couch. And she ruins the moment. And you don't find that tragic?
3: That in that moment they could have that I find it tragic
1: that the film does not Give her one instance to be able to start to have – I'm not saying she has to have the same awakening that Lester is given, but to start looking that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and here it reduces her back to being the shrill joke. And the, the hypocrisy here is that it just defended Lester's right to buy that car. But heaven forbid, you know, she might have a couch that maybe that's part of her identity. Maybe that's something that she wants to spend yeah. money on. Again, it's it's where the rules bend depending sure. on who the movie wants us to root for. And it just to me that it makes that scene it, that scene bothers me because it, it's a missed opportunity and just another sort of hypocritical touch.
3: It's a missed opportunity. I think that's the point in terms of their relationship. Well, yeah, of right? course, and and it. it It worked for me overall, but I never thought of it in terms of the car being part of that. The car for him isn't about the materialism of it. It's not a status symbol. It was a status symbol for his youth.
1: That's his whole speech. He explains all that and then justifies making a materialist purchase and then three seconds later rips on her for materialism. I I get it. But
3: uh, semantics aside, I'm talking about that car as a, a symbol of his rebellion, Right. And so it's hard to see a couch as anything but a couch. But maybe I'm just identifying too much with Lester here. Could be. And maybe the movie wants me to do just that. You should buy a new couch, Adam. (laughs) We probably need one now. I'm not going to get a Firebird anytime soon. But I should, as I'm talking about my favorite performances here, I do want to say I I like Peter Gallagher in his role. I think he – kind of manages the right tone as well and jenny i mean with given literally nothing to do she she's pretty heartbreaking herself but chris cooper i do want to touch on real quick and we got a note from jason carey a listener in new york who wrote in i think he was just responding to massacre theater and threw in this comment he said the overwrought simplistic and frankly offensive pop psychology of a repressed gay man and his self-hatred which you can see coming a mile away is truly an insult to the viewer and to the brilliant actor chris cooper who had to sell this ridiculous melodramatic well i think that's all very well said it's, it's all in fact probably true but sell it chris cooper does there's a moment mm-hmm. not only multiple moments but there's a moment when he comes to ricky's room to ask i think it's when he asks for a urine sample mm-hmm. from him and the pause when and there's he a pause yeah. there's that pause yeah. just just before he's about to say something to ricky and then in that moment i think he even says yeah dad and there's that pause And then he can't say it. And he basically just says, well, good night. And I do find that very touching because you realize there that there is whatever monster is inside of this Mm -hmm. guy. There's genuine love there for his son. But stronger than that love is this all encompassing inability to express it. And Cooper hits those notes and maybe a lesser actor couldn't have. But but it's it's actors like Cooper and Bentley and Suvari with the moments that ultimately
1: for me matter in this film. They deliver. Cooper probably does as much as you can with this part. I, I'll give you that. Uh, and I do want to circle back to what Sam noted about Ball, the screenwriter here, um, You know, exacting a sort of revenge mm-hmm. um, on a suburbia maybe he experienced in, in a lot harsher way than, than I've lived or experienced. And I didn't want what I said at the start to write that off as a legitimate approach. Um, but I think that the words – Sam uses are correct revenge. Like this is, this is a very embittered film in a lot of ways. And I think I may have more respect for it. If it had rode that train all the way through what, what's really frustrating about the movie for me is that it also wants to have this layer, this beauty theme um, That is trying to contradict that in a certain way. Um, And I might have more respect for it if Ball had just been – I'm just going to eviscerate from beginning to end maybe that shrillness that we both bristled at at the beginning if he had completely stuck with it. Um, This would have been um, a more challenging work but one that I might have respected a little bit more. I just don't think – it tries to sell us on some sort of transcendence that I don't know that it believes in it. Or just can't pull off.
3: I I, I feel like the the conviction might be there, but it sounds like you didn't have that same experience. There is a lot more we could probably talk about with this film, including a lot more great listener comments we got. And we're not going to get into it right now. Rick Slama in Seattle, I apologize, but he really wanted us to talk about for the second week in a row, it'd be a movie being compared to fight club but he he feels like there's a real similarity here and and obviously there is in terms of some of the anti-consumerism and the two narrators kind of have similar breakdowns and there's a lot we could probably get into maybe we will do that on a later show one other just quick little thing i'll point out it was interesting in that moment where it replays the moment of lester's death and we get the reactions from different perspectives in the moment as they experienced it All I could hear in my head was Mad World from Donnie Darko. I wondered if that had to be on Richard Kelly an inspiration for that moment where we we get each one of these characters reflecting on a moment. Now, this one isn't so reflective. It's more about just hearing that gunshot. But right. it's one moment, too, where I don't think there's any score. It's actually, ironically, uh, a quiet moment, but seemed to me one that was perhaps an inspiration for Kelly just a few years later. American Beauty is currently available to rent on demand on most platforms. You could also... I don't know. Check with the neighborhood kid. You get your pot from. If you agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting dot net. There it is, Josh. I tried my best. I am not going to give it the full throated four star defense.
1: Yeah, I, so not so remotely. I'm about I'm a three
3: trying. star. I'm a three star out of five three out of five I, I i'm just i'm just willing to click that like button on letterbox and say that
1: american beauty is is worth revisiting and worth reconsidering that's a hard click for me to make <laughs> we're going to stay in the suburbs to play massacre theater next then it's the first film in our contemporary chinese cinema marathon kicks off next with 2010s let the bullets fly stay with us
3: Forster in his Oscar nominated performances, Max Cherry and Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. Forster passed away over the weekend. He was 78 years old. I'm glad we got a chance to honor him recently on the show. In conjunction with our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we shared our top 10 Quentin Tarantino characters and We had three or four characters that we overlapped on, and we're both right about Max Cherry. I think we both had him at number six. Quite frankly, if it was a top five, if we didn't have a little bit of room to branch out, I probably would have found a way to get him into that top five.
1: Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about Robert Forster on that show, and I had him in the category. I broke down my Tarantino characters according to five different types, and I had him as one of the sad sacks of the Tarantino filmography I think that fits but I can't say sadly if that is a characteristic he brought to his other roles because despite my love for Max Cherry I never bothered to go back and look at some of the other work hmm. he's done so I'm hoping I don't know if you've seen more than I have Adam otherwise maybe listeners who who have more familiarity with him might be able to say here's where you go next you know everyone I think Max Cherry is the first thing people think of now, and rightly so, probably for Forster. But if you want to see more of his stuff, where do you go next? Where do you go after that?
3: And not to belabor it too much, your designation, your categories there absolutely made sense. And yet I don't actually think about Max Cherry – As being sad. He seems like he's a character who maybe is missing something in his life a little bit, but also has come to terms with his life in a way that maybe other sad, sack characters on your list haven't quite. For me, I called that performance a masterclass in minimalism. And he's one of the few characters in the Tarantino universe who watches and who listens, and who really doesn't most of the time have an angle here. He really is there to observe. Now, you mentioned other performances. I'm sure I've seen him pop up in a movie or two after Jackie Brown. But for me, the one I would definitely point people to if they haven't seen it, just because they need to see it. It's medium cool. The Haskell Wexler film from, I think, 68 really shot here in Chicago during the riots at the Democratic National Convention. Forster plays a Cynical TV news cameraman who is covering it and Wexler, the great cinematographer turned director here shot a lot of it as the riots were actually happening, but imposing his own narrative over the top of it. And Forster is really fantastic in that film Sad to lose Robert Forster. But fortunately, we will always have Max Cherry and Jackie Brown, as we are want to do. Here from time to time, we have movie passes to give away Motherless Brooklyn, the movie we touched on, a recent show that's part of the Chicago International Film Festival, actually the opening night film. There is a Monday, October 28th screening of the movie that is taking place here in Chicago, 7 p.m. on that night, and we have passes to give away First Come, First Serve. If you go to filmspotting.net slash events, you can enter to see that
1: movie that Edward Norton stars in. Definitely directed, maybe wrote or co-wrote as well. We also like to keep you abreast of what's going on with the next picture show, our sister podcast. The hosts there, of course, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. Right now, you can listen to part one of their The Man Who Laughs pairing. They're talking about Joker, the great Joker. Along with Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, and I'm glad this one just came in today, Adam, I think today, the day we're recording, and I get to listen to this one. I have their Casino and Hustlers pairing on hold because I'm actually working my way through all of Scorsese's. Mob movies. I'm wow. hoping to do that before The Irishman, um, so that's on hold for me. But I get to jump in right now with this Joker Dark Knight pairing. Should be a good one. Yeah, I did. Speaking of Scorsese and revisiting
3: those movies, I did want to point out to you a glitch apparently that happened on Letterbox when mm. you rated Goodfellas. Good. No, I, I mean it, it's just it's a Letterbox problem, and maybe uh-huh. we need to notify them because when you clicked five stars, yeah. it only gave it four and a half. Four and a half. It's really weird. I don't know why that happens. It seems to happen only to your reviews sometimes. There's five a half star. star or one star off
1: that five star so, rating is i would send an email i'll support, try that i'll try support that Letterboxed. it is very rare to get that five star rating <laughs> new episodes of the next picture show they post every tuesday at midnight you could get them wherever you find your podcasts and there's also more information at nextpictureshow.net. Over at filmspotting.net is where you can find
3: the film spotting poll question. We are currently asking you a question related to the upcoming The Lighthouse from director Robert Eggers, which has Willem Dafoe playing an eccentric mentor to Robert Pattinson. And that got our producer Sam thinking, which complicated 2010s movie mentor would you most like to see in another film? The choices we gave you
1: last week on the show were. Christoph Waltz as Dr. King Schultz in Django Unchained. Ray Fiennes as Monsieur Gustave H in the Grand Budapest Hotel. You like how I say that, Adam? I love it. Very fancy. <laughs> Jennifer Lopez as Ramona in the aforementioned Hustlers. How about Greta Gerwig as Brooke in Mistress America? We also are offering this option: Mahershala Ali as Juan in Moonlight. Jake Johnson, my guy, Jake Johnson. As oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot. <sighs> you knew it was all building to this. That's right. Peter B. Parker in Spider-Man: Into the Spider-Verse, and jk simmons as terence fletcher in whiplash we also gave you the category of other no i love sam including
3: this here just to pat himself on the back a little bit maybe he needs it maybe he needs to be reassured after coming down hard on himself for some of his deeply flawed film spotting poll questions over the years sam from sydney i'm guessing that sydney australia writes in and says guys mainly sam you've done some bad that is badly flawed poll questions over the years but this is absolutely one of your best I like it too. I agree.
1: Nice work, Sam.
3: Yeah. Both Sams. Because as we touched on, it's not just about which mentor relationship or which mentor you like, but which one of these mentors you want to see in another movie. There's more to the saga. A lot of factors to consider in this one. There are. And you can vote now and leave a comment. At filmspotting.net. If you leave a
1: comment, we hope you do let us know where you're listening from. It's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t shirt. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene.
3: to talk about power here. Whoa, whoa, guys, power is everything. I, power is everything. What do you mean? Without it, they don't talk to us, they don't correct their trajectory, they don't turn the heat shield around. I, we gotta turn everything off now. They're not gonna make it to re-entry.
0: What do you mean, everything?
3: With everything on, the Lem draws 60 amps. At that rate, in 16 hours, the batteries are dead, not 45. And so is the crew. We got to get them down to 12 amps. Oh, 12.
2: 12. amps. 12. How, How
3: many? You, running? Running? you can't run a vacuum cleaner on 12 amps, John. John? Turn off. <laughs> we got to turn off the radars, cabin heater, instrument displays, the guidance computer, the whole smack. Whoa, guidance yes. computer?
1: What if they need to do another burn? Gene, they won't even know which way they're pointed. The more time we talk down here, the more juice they waste up there. I've been looking at the data for the past hour. That's the deal? That's the deal. So that was Lauren Dean, Ed Harris, and some other folks. We kind of- Yeah, do we have an ensemble in the studio? (laughs) Yes. A lot of characters in that scene from 1995's Apollo 13. It was written by William Broyles Jr. and Al Reinhart, based on the book by Jim Lovell and Jeffrey Kluger, and it was directed by Ron Howard. That massacre was part of a show a few weeks back when we reviewed James Gray's Ad Astra, and we also shared our top five Steppenwolf member movie performances. So why Apollo 13? Beyond the obvious- Let's see what listeners
3: came up with. Well, first, speaking of the obvious, Henrik Hansen and Yalding UK wrote in, Houston, we had no problem with this one. Parentheses, because it's Apollo 13. I'll get my coat. Yeah, that was almost as bad as a pun. (laughs) Chris Massa in Pittsburgh, PA. He of the Massa Minute writes in, gosh, can it be more obvious? Ed Astra is set in space. Apollo 13 is set in space. Gary Sinise is a founding member of Steppenwolf. Gary Sinise is in Apollo 13. Heck, Josh even mentioned that Gary Sinise in Apollo 13 almost made his top five list. That said, is it possible that Apollo 13 is actually underrated? I feel like it's a movie that everybody has seen and just about everybody loves, but I don't usually hear it discussed as one of the best of the 90s, even though I'd argue that it is. It's certainly better than Braveheart, which won the best picture Oscar over Apollo 13. But it's a terrific movie filled with great performances, a flawless script, ghostwritten by John Sayles, and career best work from Ron Howard, maybe a reappraisal is in order.
1: I think that's fair, Chris. I think it's a movie that people respect, but maybe do underappreciate a little bit for the craftsmanship. I mean,
3: here, I'm going to probably give it a backhanded compliment and say, I'd be up for revisiting it, except I can't imagine having a different reaction to it,
1: which is- That's probably true. I really liked it. Yeah. I really liked it at the time. I'd probably really like it now. Here's a comment from Rich Starnes in Jefferson City, Missouri. Most of the lines in this scene were spoken by one of my favorite 90s character actors, Lauren Dean. Dean was great in three of my favorite movies from the 90s, Apollo 13, 97's Gattaca, and 99's forgotten mumford and after not seeing him in ages he is back in ad astra which along with 2000 space cowboys was dean's second time as an astronaut exploring the same solar system as tommy lee jones and donald sutherland now
3: i don't remember our slack conversations about this massacre theater but i think this is one sam was onto to this connection knowing that lauren dean yes was
1: in both roles i agree yeah an and interesting you, actor you know who lauren dean was for me in the 90s who my Jake Johnson. Really? I, I just thought great things ahead. Uh, didn't it quite didn't work really out. happen,
3: did it? And speaking of space cowboys, isn't it true it has to be an Ad Astra every time they cut to that picture of a younger Tommy Lee Jones in the spacesuit, They just had I was thinking still that. photos from, yeah. from the making of that movie. Shirley, sure, that's my assumption. Right? Okay. Well, let's reach into the pretty brimming film spotting hat because it really was. Henrik, one of the most obvious Massacre theaters ever, and Josh Pickout, this week's winner. Against insurmountable odds with all those entries, Eric Persak from Park Ridge, Illinois wins. Congratulations, Eric. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very
0: own Film Spotting t-shirt. I think your dialogue is beautiful. I really do. I love it. Then why the hell don't you just stand still and say it? Instead of wandering all over the stage, you're supposed to be looking for your soul, not an ashtray.
3: We move on now to the latest edition of Massacre Theater. I think the tie-in, the tie-ins
1: should be pretty evident to anyone listening, Josh. Yeah, this might be another fairly easy one. Um, also, we have props. <laughs> we do. I mean, the listeners may not be able to tell. <laughs> no,
3: but you know what? If you want to take a nice pause and have a little sip, Josh, that's fine. I think it will be appropriate to this scene. We'll see if I need it. Okay. You started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action.
1: Do you have anything to drink? I believe the kegs are upstairs. That is what the Cretans drink. I'm talking about alcohol, liquor, the good stuff. All right. I've got some scotch. Single
3: malt. Aged 18 years. The way I like it. And And scene.
1: scene. (laughs) Now I have to revoke everything I said about American Beauty and criticized it for. Truly. Mm -hmm. I don't know that either of us were
3: properly seductive there, Josh. I'm pretty convinced we weren't. If you know what film, despite that terrible acting, we just massacred. And I kind of hope you don't. <laughs> Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 28th. The
1: winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Uh, you want to go? I don't know uh, where I particularly want to go. I'm happy just driving.
0: Driving? Driving around...
1: Well, you you've got to do the driving. I, I get to sit here and, and look at the view. Right.
3: Julia Binoche and William Schimmel there in the late Abbas Kirostami certified copy. Kirostami's films filled with memorable scenes of just driving around. And Certified Copy is one of two movies reviewed on this show over the years that is playing as part of a limited engagement series at the Gene Siskel Film Center here in Chicago. I know the retrospective has hit other cities as well. The other film, of course, like Someone in Love, reviewed on the show. The Siskel Film Center retrospective of Kyrostami's work plays until the end of October, and it encompasses a total of 32 films, the largest selection of the work of this major Iranian filmmaker that's ever been seen in North America. And there's a new book out by longtime critic Godfrey Cheshire. Conversations with Kiristami, which is a companion to this Janus Criterion Collection tour. Cheshire is a longtime critic and author. He's written for the New York Times, Variety, Film Comment, Sight and Sound, and more. And beginning in 1992, he was really the first American critic to write in detail about Iran's post-revolutionary cinema as a relative neophyte when it comes to Kiristami's work, but a fan of his work. I felt like I had to own this book and wanted to spend a few minutes talking to Godfrey Cheshire about the book, about Kirostami here on the show. Let's hear that conversation. Godfrey, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. So I wanted to start looking over your bio with your personal relationship with Kirostami because you really did have a connection with him and you spent time with him, including going back to the site of his Coker trilogy. And I was curious because the forward to the book includes comments from his son, Ahmad, who speculates about your relationship and why there was a connection. I'm curious from your perspective, why you think you guys did hit it off the way you did. And beyond his prodigious talent and his body of work, what drew you to him as both a person and an artist?
2: Well, he was a very warm and interesting person. And we sort of clicked the very first time we met, which was in New York in 1994, when He was there with the film uh, Through the Olive Trees, and I interviewed him. Uh, And I'd gotten interested in his work a couple of years before that, when I wrote my first article for Film Comment about Iranian cinema. But when I met him, um, we just really had a good time talking. And then uh, I went to Iran uh, in three years after that and went to his home, as did other foreign guests. But we... I think we really got along well, and he had a great sense of humor. This was one thing that I really appreciated about him. He was uh, fun to talk to, and then I was with him at the Cannes Film Festival not long after that when Taste of Cherry won the Palme d'Or, and um, following that, I went to Iran and spent the summer and spent a lot of time with him, so we had a pretty good amount of time to uh, get really acquainted, and uh, he seemed to really like me, and I, I certainly really enjoyed talking with him.
3: What drew you to his work in the first place, and was that your foray into Iranian cinema, or were you already into Iranian cinema, and your relationship with Kiarostami grew from there?
2: Well, what happened was, in 1992, Film Comment asked me to go cover the first festival of post-revolutionary Iranian films in New York, which was at Lincoln Center. And I had no idea of anything going on in Iranian cinema. I just wanted to write the Film Comment. But I went, and I was really kind of blown away by all the great films I saw, not only really good films, but filmmakers that were just so impressive and distinctive, and I'd heard of none of them before. Um, I wrote this article, and it ended up, I started off talking about one of Kurosawa's films, Close Up, which is still my favorite of his films, and was so amazing to me. But I talked about other of his films, too. Um, At the time, he wasn't regarded as the greatest of their directors, but his work stood out more than any of the other these amazing directors. So I kind of focused on that, and so I was ready to meet him when he came to New York in 94. I had a lot that I wanted to ask him about his work. But... Even though there were other great films, as I say, his work really stood out to me.
3: So besides the obvious goal when talking to any great artist, when you did have these conversations and you started putting together the the dialogue that became this book, Conversations with Kiristami, what was your goal? Was there an objective beyond just trying to, like I said, pick the brain of an artist you admired?
2: Well, you know, I didn't have the objective of uh, publishing these interviews at the time that I did them. I was thinking I was going to write a book about Iranian cinema and that I would talk to him about these films and get information from him because there's not much has been written about, especially the early part of his work. And so I thought I would try to find out about it through talking to him. So I had these uh, things recorded. Well, that book on Iranian cinema never did happen or it, it kind of morphed into something else that is to be published next year. But and this was way back when, but I still had this information. And when uh, it was announced that the uh, Janus films, people were going to release this big retrospective of all of his work that's now touring the country. I thought, gosh, well, I've got all these interviews and the Janus people asked to work with me because there is so little information about a lot of earlier films. So I went over with an editor and looked at the interviews, um, had them transcribed, looked at them, and we decided this could make a really good book. So it was sort of fortuitous the way that this all unfolded.
3: Were there any surprises for you revisiting these conversations?
2: You know, I, I was happily surprised that they really seemed to hold up as readable conversations. You know, I wasn't thinking about them being readable when I conducted them, and not all conversations that you conduct, interviews, are very readable. Some are and some aren't. But I thought this was really, it was a very interesting read to me going back through all this, thinking about these films, many of which I like a great deal. And also somebody said to me after the book came out that the warmth in the friendship between me and Kit Karastami came out of these these, uh, conversations too. So I was happy that people perceive that.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: So the book covers two movies you've mentioned already and that we've covered in some detail on this show in the past. One of them, Taste of Cherry, which we talked about in... The context of a marathon that looked at Palme d'Or winners. And then we also did a contemporary Iranian cinema marathon where Close Up was the first film. So really my my foray into Iranian cinema, my first foray into Kiristami's work as well. And that really was the film that established him sort of internationally. For our listeners who don't really know the film, it's about a poor man who's arrested after infiltrating a family by impersonating another iranian filmmaker Mohsen Makmalbaf, who was also a filmmaker we covered in the marathon he's arrested he's put on trial the movie basically recreates the whole event including the trial with the actual participants it's maybe the ultimate film that blurs the lines between fiction and non-fiction and it's just yes. a masterpiece and he yes. had a really interesting answer to one of your questions really that closes out your conversation about that movie when you bring up the editing difference from the time you saw it in 92 to how it is, you know, in subsequent showings. And I'd love for you to just kind of elucidate that a little bit, because it really did kind of startle me, but it made total sense at the same time.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it, it, it was startling to me, too, that when I first saw the film, the opening of the film and the editing of the film was one way. And then when I saw it again, a few years later, it was different. And so I asked him about that. And he said, well, The film had gone early on to a festival in Germany, and the projectionist mixed up the reels. And Kiristami, instead of being outraged or whatever, decided he liked the mixed up reels better than what he had. So he went back to Iran and re edited the film, which I think is pretty hilarious. Um, But, uh, you know, it works both ways, I think. And, you know, you may be interested that when I was in Iran the last time, two years ago, I heard that there is yet another version of close-up where they have put the courtroom scenes in black and white. Now, why they did this, hmm. I don't know. But the courtroom scenes were filmed in 16 millimeter, where the rest was in 35 millimeter. And the film is very tricky in the way that it uses a lot of things, the editing, the music, the sound effects, and restaging these things. And you can't tell, which is, as you said, it really blurs the line between fiction and, and something that's been dramatically created.
3: Another part that I just found really fascinating happens just before that bit in the book where you ask him about the fact that the movie close up obviously is very much about movies and about the power of movies. And his, his answer is really incredible. And if you don't mind, I actually do want to read part of this here. He says, I didn't want to highlight cinema other than that aspect of cinema that fulfills our dreams. It's about when life gets hard and the daydreams become more intense. We know everything about our five senses, but we never think about our dreams. There was a time when I thought if I were asked to choose between my eyesight and the ability to dream, I'd choose dreams. Because even without your eyes, you can live a better life with the help of your dreams. Without dreams, how can one live? Dreams are like the fan in an automobile engine. When the engine overheats, the fan automatically starts working. If the wire snaps, the car won't go forward. With the help of dreams, we can escape from the worst prisons. Actually, only the body can be imprisoned in dreams. You can escape the walls. And it goes on from there. And it seems to me maybe one of the most eloquent and poetic descriptions of cinema ever, honestly, in some ways, but certainly his work.
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that thing that you just quoted is key to his whole view of cinema throughout his career. And it's very, very eloquent. It's very moving. And I think you're right that it sort of touches at the essential Appeal and function of cinema for so many people.
3: I was curious too about your favorite, and I think you already answered that. You said Close Up was your favorite. Yes. Is that the film that you would also recommend to people as a starting point, as it was for me, people who are listening who have never seen one of his films? Is that where you would begin?
2: Well, you know, I'm really glad you're asking that question because I think it's an important one for a lot of directors. I mean, I see, you know, so many films, and there's some directors who I can see five of their films and not like their work, and then all of a sudden I see one and I go, wow, I wish I'd seen this one first because it would have helped me get all the others. And with Kiristami, I I say to people that I think the place to start is with Close Up and the Coker Trilogy, which were all made very close together in time. And I think these films – the Coker Trilogy, the individual films as well as the way that those three films fit together – are just really, really appealing and, and accessible. I think anybody would like these films. Whereas I think when you go further, to me, I was really kind of baffled by Taste of Cherry because it was so austere and in some ways despairing yeah. and off-putting and less accessible than those earlier films. So I, I, you know, never advise people to start with, uh, Taste of Cherry. But I think if they see those earlier films and then come to Taste of Cherry, they're sort of ready for that.
3: Now, you are working on another book about Kirostami. Can you tell us about in the time of Kiristami?
2: Yeah, the title is meant to suggest In the Time of Kiristami Writings on Iranian Cinema. It's not entirely about Kiristami. I wanted to present a number of my writings on Kiristami, some of which had been published in the past and some I've written new for the book, in the context of the other uh, Iranian cinema that I was writing about at the time. Because it bothered me a little bit when Kiristami became such a big deal very quickly in the 90s and won the Palme d'Or that people thought he was just like this super international tour without understanding anything about the context that he came out of, which was a really, really remarkable national cinema that continues to be a remarkable national cinema. And so the idea of the book was to give you Kirastami in the context from which he emerged.
3: I can't wait to read it. I'm assuming you'll cover Jafar Panahi in there as well. We watched his film, The Mirror, in that Iranian cinema marathon that I mentioned and talk about another film that blurs lines. That's kind of one of my favorite types of approaches to cinema. That film is another one that I think is a wonder.
2: Right. And Panahi is such an amazing guy. I saw him in uh, Tehran a couple of years ago when I was there for the festival. And uh, he, you know, he's supposed to be under house arrest. They don't seem to enforce this very much, but right. <laughs> I went to his, I went to his house for a party and he opened the door and said in English, this party is for you. If not for you, I might be in prison now. And he was thanking me. I was so moved by this because he doesn't speak English. Someone must have taught him to say this to so they could say it to me. And I was very moved. I mean, I had worked with a number of other people to do a big poll and, and letter from American filmmakers to the world press about keeping Panahi out of prison um, 10 years ago. And he he thought it really had a big effect. I mean, wow. he, you know, he didn't, he's not in prison, but he's going on making movies, as you know, I'm sure. Yes. He seems to turn out one, or, one a year at least. And I just, it's kind of unbelievable to me that he can carry on the way he does, but I'm really happy that he can.
3: Yeah. One of them specifically about how he's not supposed to be making a film, but made a film. This is not a film, which is a very good yeah, film.
2: Yeah. I think it's one of his best. It's one of my favorites.
3: Well, tell us more about this book as well. Conversations with Kiristami in terms of where people can find it if they're curious.
2: Well, it's on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way. There, there are other ways online that you can buy. It, but if uh, you know, I, I, I would love it if people would uh, you know go to Amazon and find it. I think anybody who's a Kiristami fan will would really enjoy this book.
3: Yeah, I agree. We will definitely link to it in our show notes over at Filmspotting.net and. Definitely recommend, obviously, Kirastami's work to anyone listening who hasn't taken that plunge, and this would be a perfect companion to it. Godfrey Cheshire, thanks so much for your time.
2: Thank you, Adam. I really enjoyed it.
1: That's
0: yo
1: and Zhang Wen in 2010s, let the bullets fly. The legendary Chow Yun Fat also in that scene. Bullets, which was also directed by Zhang, is the first film in our contemporary Chinese cinema marathon. We mentioned this on our last show, but this four-film marathon was inspired by Seattle-based critic and friend of the show, Sean Gilman. Sean's noted a lack of Chinese films in the best films of the decade conversation that has been swirling about. We're going to hear from Sean in just a bit. First, let's try to set up some of the plot of Let the Bullets Fly. This does get complicated, but basically it's set in 1920s China, a particularly lawless time in the country's history. This is following the collapse of the Qing dynasty, the country's final imperial dynasty. So director Jiang Wen plays the infamous bandit, Paki Zhang, who, with his gang, pull off this elaborate heist of a horse-drawn train car, which is transporting the new governor of Goosetown. That's the opening scene of the film. Now, the actual governor, played by Ge Yeo, claims that the governor died in the ambush and that he is not the governor, but instead the governor's counselor. Jiang's Paki Zhang decides to take the governor's place and assume his role in Goosetown. So Paki Zhang, the bandit, mm-hmm. arrives in Goosetown, Posing as the governor. Now, Goose Town, it turns out, is not really run by a governor, but rather a gangster named Master Huang, played by Chow Yun Fat. Chow also plays Master Huang's dim-witted body double. Hopefully, you are still with me. Hopefully, you've already watched Let the Bullets Fly and are bringing some context into this. The rest of the film is a battle of wits and guns between Jiang's bandit and Chao's gangster.
3: And speaking of context, certainly Sean Gilman, our expert, did a wonderful job giving us some as we prepared for this discussion. He wrote in with some explanations as to why this was for him an obvious starting point for this marathon. And the first thing he touched on was the presence of a familiar star in Chow Yun-Fat, obviously known for his 80s and 90s heroic bloodshed movies with John Woo and Ringo Lam. He talked about its indebtedness to spaghetti westerns and the films of Akira Kurosawa. You definitely can't watch this film and not think about Yojimbo and the Seven Samurai. And he told us a little bit about the setting and the timing in Chinese history. The setting is Republican era China, the period between the collapse of the Qing dynasty in 1911 and the beginning of outright war with Japan in 1937. And this is a time, Sean tells us, where you had various warlords and criminal gangs operating beyond the jurisdiction of the official and generally corrupt government, increasingly coalescing into a civil war between Chiang Kai-shek's National government and Mao's communists and that only got resolved after World War II. It was interesting to read about Jiang Wen as an actor and as an early filmmaker because having only seen this film and not knowing anything about him otherwise, it was kind of shocking to know that the first couple of films he directed Sean said they were more similar to the films of Edward Yang who made Yi and Ho Shao Shen and his kind of more spiritual and transcendent slow pieces of cinema so when this came out in 2010 the fact that it was a straight up genre film really was a bit surprising but it was a huge hit Sean points out commercial cinema in China was just beginning to grow after years of neglect following the cultural revolution and Tiananmen Square crackdown and filmmakers like Zhang Yimou and Jia Janka found audiences at international film festivals, but rarely at home. That all changed finally in 2010 as the nation's movie theater industry expanded rapidly, flooded by imported talent from Hong Kong and Taiwan, attracted by the vast sums of wealth available to be invested in films because the nation's economy was rapidly booming. So with all of that, We knew we needed to have Sean's voice as part of this marathon. We're going to hear from him every week. You may hear from him again as we get into this review, but we didn't want to overlook the professor, Nathaniel Myers, who has been such a great part of our past four or five marathons, I think. And even though he doesn't have the perspective on Chinese government or on Chinese cinema that Sean certainly has, we thought it was still worthwhile to have another neophyte helping to set up our conversations and guide us along. So let's hear from the professor on Let the Bullets Fly.
0: Hello, film spotting. Four marathons in one year. What is this beautiful magic, guys? I'm so glad you're doing another one. And I'm particularly excited for the focus on contemporary Chinese cinema. I found this week's film, Zhang Yan's Let the Bullets Fly, to be an entertaining entryway, if also a film with the kinds of challenges that I think will make this marathon particularly rewarding. The film moves at a clip, propelled by the many kinds of comedy it employs, from the dark physical slapstick that undergirds a lot of the film's action, to the narrative misadventures around fake and mistaken identities, as well as the conversational back and forths that take place so quickly that the editing itself seems to be trying to keep up. It makes for a pretty fun ride, even as the film itself has some serious things to say. What those serious things are is where it gets a little more challenging, especially as its cultural reference points aren't, I'll admit, always immediately clear to me. Obviously, the film is in many ways a Robin Hood tale, with Zhang Yen's Paki Zhang seeking to bring an end to the political corruption and socio-economic injustices of Goose Town under the rule of Chao yun Fat's Master Huang. Which is all well and good, but there also seems to be a degree of cynicism, if not nihilism, in the film. There's a lot of lying and masquerading from every one of our film's main characters, and even the final catalyst for revolution requires our ostensible hero to execute Huang's relatively innocent body double in order to dupe the idle townspeople into action. So Josh, Adam. While recognizing that having a better sense of the cultural reference points of the film might lend some clarity to its messaging, I'm wondering, in general, if you also felt its broader cynicism. Is its critique of corruption and injustice directed one way, towards Huang, or is its political worldview a tinge more complicated and possibly more pessimistic as such? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the movie, guys. Thanks.
3: Thank you, Nathaniel, for that. Certainly a lot to comment on and I said that we would probably hear more from Sean I actually do want to I suppose respond to Nathaniel with a quote from Sean writing about another Jiang Wen movie from 2018 called Hidden Man he says 20th century chinese history is for Jiang Wen a chronicle of corruption stupidity cruelty viciousness and betrayal by everyone and against everyone but it's also a place of mystery and wonder and silliness where justice and honor and true belief are possible but extremely rare and deeply buried. Again, he's writing about a movie called Hidden Man from 2018, but is there really a better description of this movie, Let the Bullets Fly, than that? Yeah, that's really fitting. It's funny because Sean, nowhere in his comments to us did he mention this movie, but I happened to catch in his letterbox Blurb review of... Let the Bullets Fly, he mentioned the movie title that I know I was searching for in my head the entire time I was watching Bullets. And of course, I was thinking about Yojimbo and to an extent Seven Samurai, because yes, I've confessed before, I've never seen it in its entirety, but Sean nails it. This is actually, in its way, an interesting take on the Coen Brothers' Miller's Crossing, where I really see this young Wen character, Paki, as kind of a Tom Regan character Mm. who you never really know what he's thinking you never really know when he's double crossing people or he's planning these stunts if you will you aren't totally sure where his allegiance might be or what his motivations are. You're just kind of along for the ride with him. And that's fine because he's a fascinating character. And I think Wen, as an actor is so much fun to watch, kind of he an really unlikely is. action hero in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, right? Cause he doesn't necessarily have the stature. He doesn't have the stature of a guy like Chow Yun fat. And that's another pleasure of this movie is watching that guy who we only know from the few films we've probably seen as this very heroic and mostly stoic Figure And here he's downright silly. He's goofy. He has a double role. He actually plays his double as well because he's this warlord gangster. He needs to have a body double in case harm, whatever, befall him. And he's a complete cartoonish character. And I think that Yun Fat pulls that off. But there's no doubt going back to Nathaniel's question that Hoang is the villain of this movie. And I think when Paki tells him at the end, he's an honorable man as he hands him a gun. It's more You could be an honorable man by doing the right thing with this one bullet in this gun. It's not necessarily that he actually is, but maybe he could redeem himself finally in this moment. But it's definitely true that Pocky, as I said, his motivations are not totally clear. He talks about justice a lot. He speaks thoughtfully about losing life. And he definitely doesn't seem interested in wealth or materialism, but he is kind of as a bandit, an agent of chaos himself who isn't above taking lives. And he was at the very beginning of the film robbing that train and caused a death in the process. He's not looking for an opportunity to be Robin Hood. There's perhaps even a revenge element to a lot of his motivations that we see as he loses his number two in his gang, his son, as he speaks of him without that death. Does he stay in the town? Does all of this bloodshed and upheaval actually happen? The movie doesn't really ever take the time, probably to its credit, to examine
1: any of these questions, but it does throw them all out there. Yeah, I think that the movie's best joke, and I do consider this to be a comedy primarily, is that Paki Zhang, this bandit, ends up being the moral center. That doesn't he mean doesn't. he's he's an upstanding citizen. Yeah, he's not flawed. But in compa- he's not flawed, he's not interesting, he's not complicated. But yeah, in comparison, he's the moral center. And I think that's the joke that the movie is trying to make. And it has a lot on its mind in terms of ideas beyond the slapstick and the silliness that is also a defining characteristic of Let the Bullets Fly. Maybe Paki Zhang is partly Tom Regan and partly Roadrunner because there's very much a Looney Tunes aesthetic going on here. The only context I had to this, completely unfamiliar with Jiang as well, um, were some of the films I've seen of Stephen Chow, Hong Kong filmmaker who did uh, Shaolin Soccer, Kung Fu Hustle, CJ7. Those are the three I've seen. And those also very much struck me as Looney Tunes variations that are Physics basically takes a backseat to fun. Mm -hmm. And you have that happening a lot in this movie right in that opening train sequence where the entire train goes flipping over itself. And there's even – I mean this movie is looking for every opportunity to be showy. There's even that um, section where an alarm clock is thrown in the air, shot – by someone Mm -hmm. and it the pieces explode and like a metal ring seems to just like sail right over the camera and kind of like hook it like a hula hoop. And right there, you know that this is a movie that's going to be showing off. And I was on board for that. It was enjoyable. But once you also understand that there is some satire going on here, Mm -hmm. um, some cynicism, and eventually it's going to be a joke about the pervasiveness of corruption. I think it made it added up to a whole lot more than I was expecting yeah. from those first from that first opening
3: section for sure. First. And despite that Looney Tune sensibility and that aesthetic, there is a somberness at times to the movie that really comes through the son's sacrifice in what is really kind of a a brutal moment. And there is some brutal violence in the film, but it takes on a weight that I found really surprising. The wife's death, the wife of the governor who is on that train, I think is played very seriously and in that final confrontation between Wang and Pocky he brings up Puppy the character Puppy who is kind of the henchman son character to Wang brings up that death and the fact that he lost someone important in this as well so I think the movie does when it can take time to remind us of the weight of those losses. Of course, as we talk about some of the characters that Pocky is maybe similar to in cinema, and we mentioned how Sean had commented on the debt to spaghetti westerns, I think about a movie that I love, a Clint Eastwood, I'm pretty sure directed film, High Plains Drifter, where he's a stranger character. And unlike Pocky, Eastwood's stranger has... Outright contempt for the townspeople in my letterbox review, I called it a relentlessly bleak allegory of the human capacity for cowardice and avarice with Eastwood's stranger and almost sugar like supernatural presence slightly funnier and only slightly more righteous so three outlaws are coming to the town they hire this gunfighter, and the town people basically prove barely worth saving and what we see is Eastwood's character bringing a reckoning to the outlaws but also to the town and we definitely don't get in this film a condemnation of the people in the exact same way here or as blatant of one. But what does stand out to me as we talk about the film's sort of political sensibility, I suppose, is the absence of the townspeople. Yeah. Right. They're barely here until the end, really, when they've been completely manipulated by Pocky to get what he wants there were really not many scenes involving the townspeople at all. We do meet a courtesan character. We meet a few people over the the course of the movie. There's the one poor
1: shopkeeper who gets (laughs) really
3: rung through the ringer and kind of played by both sides. (laughs) That's true. But ultimately, it's really about this power struggle. And I wonder if that's maybe the real allegory of the film, that in the sweep of history, these warring factions operate almost exclusively
1: without any regard whatsoever for the people they're actually ruling. Yeah, you definitely get that sense from their absence here. You you mentioned or talked a little bit about Zhang as a performer. And I've just got to agree with you. He's such an absolute delight to watch. And I think it's how he handles and balances the material. It's almost as if – I mean, he's got these big ears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just say Like these noticeably big ears. And it's almost as if he's aware of that. And so he understands that that gives him something of a comic vibe. Mm-hmm. And he can underplay everything else because uh, he's so stoned-faced through a lot of this that sells a bunch of the humor. And then you're right to have Chow Yun-fat opposite him who is going big in two different ways. Mm -hmm. He's big as the gangster, of course, but then as this body double, um, he's hugely broad but somehow equally amusing. I think it's part – You know, if you had a character or if you had an actor, I should say, who you didn't know from something like, you know, not even Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but even the killer as Mm -hmm. the stoic presence. Maybe it wouldn't be as enjoyable to see someone going this big. But because he's Chow Yun Fat, um, this is a very funny performance as well. So those as like the two opposite ends anchoring this story pitted against each other is is a huge part of the font. It is. Me.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe as you talk about him, he is so reserved when as Paki Zhang that he's almost like a Buster Keaton character. He's very deadpan. <laughs> yeah, I can and see that, that. that's why you really can't read him. And so that just makes him more enigmatic and mysterious and fun as you were always trying to get into his head. And of course, as an action hero at the same time, he's still very capable. I did love Nathaniel's line about the editing. He said something about the editing almost trying to keep up with itself, and yeah, you that's do great. get that it's sense. So what is? I, I just made a note. I watched this movie about a week and a half ago, so it's not as clear in my mind as I'd like. But I made a note about a conversation that happens early in the film yes. that is shot in such a way it's like the actors almost know where the edit's going to happen and are trying to get their words in before it cuts away from them. That's how fast the editing is going.
1: Imagine something like His Girl Friday. So like a classic Hollywood screwball repartee, except instead of both actors spitting those lines at each other in one shot, each line gets a cut to the actor's face. That's essentially what we get in that scene. And yeah, it's really really something. It is. And the title
3: let the bullets fly which is referenced twice in the film i really think is clever because we see in it his group's impatience it's paki firing his gun at a far distance at a target a pretty unlikely target but of course he's paki jeng so he can do it and they say oh you missed and he says just wait a second just <laughs> let the bullets fly a second and it's so rich in a movie that otherwise doesn't really wait for anything it asks us in those Mm. moments to just pause for a second i think the only time the movie really does completely slow down is for some of the jokes and that's why the movie is so funny you think about at the end as part of that big climactic showdown the sense of humor we see on display with the geese showing up as the only supporting army basically Mm -hmm. they're they're kind of militia members and even that exchange he has with his men that really is stretched out. At least it feels stretched out in this fast paced movie where he's giving his men the odds of them succeeding in this challenge. And at first it starts out like 30% and they keep coming back to him. And the movie goes back to that joke over and over again. I think it becomes quite funny just in its repetition. But in terms of the style of this movie, the rewards of it really are the scenes like the one where there's going to be a showdown and the two warring groups of bandits have all put covers oh, over to their face. talk about this. Yeah. They all put covers over their face, and they're trying to deceive each other, but all they end up doing is confusing themselves. Right. They're all wearing the same number masks, so they're not sure who the leader is. They're not yeah. sure who anybody <laughs> is. So there's a funny exchange there as they start in a circle and then ultimately decide to separate and fire at each other. And in the aftermath of that, there's a scene where Pocky confronts Huang, and I love the way when shoots that, where they emerge from the dark and it's only the lightning that's illuminating them there in the scene. They're almost like ghosts who are there to haunt Wang in that scene. Every time the lightning crashes, we see they're getting a little bit closer to him.
1: Yeah, that sequence with the masks is so great, and I couldn't quite follow. These are essentially bandit masks, so if you were traveling out in the woods and someone came upon you wearing one of these masks, you know you're about to get robbed, but they did. You're right. They had a number of circles that signified something. I didn't quite follow, but the two rival gangs, they each put the same number of circles, hoping to trick the other, and then they meet together, and it's this face-off as farce, essentially, and that what. so great about that is it's this culmination of, essentially, this is why the Roadrunner came to mind, is there are all these strategic chess moves being made between Huang and Paki throughout the film. And one gets ahead of the other a little bit, and then the other gets ahead. Of course, we know Paki is the Roadrunner, so he's always going to be in the lead. But yeah, this sequence with the mask kind of undercuts that and says, despite all this planning, it it devolves Mm -hmm. into this chaos. And you're right about a lot of the visual gags Um, I mean, the title refers also to the speed of the visual gags for me. A lot of Mm -hmm. them, there is patience and they wait for them to arrive. But some of them come so quickly, you can barely keep up. And we're also attuned to this right at the beginning as well. I think perhaps the first shot, if not maybe the third or fourth, is of one of the bandits coming up to the railroad tracks Mm -hmm. in the mountains. We've seen this a million times, right? What's he going to do? I think we even saw this in Assassination of... Jesse James, when we talked about this yeah. earlier, we know he's going to put his ear on the track, of course. right? But what does he do? First, he like sticks his finger in his ear and like cleans it out yeah. and then puts his ear down. And if, I rem- if I'm remembering correctly, I watched this a little while ago, like you as well, the way his head is facing away from the camera, we think, well, the train's going to come from that direction. Right. That's what we've been trained. And all of a sudden, he jumps up and twists his head and looks right ass at us into the camera Mm -hmm. and we know that the train is coming from our direction again those are just two like you know not hilarious visual playfulness little visual playfulness that comes at you a million miles an hour And there's
3: a lot of that in this another one and honestly if you really broke down the film you could find one at least one in every scene maybe 17 of them there's a scene on the train in that opening sequence where tang who kind of becomes the counselor figure though the not trustworthy counselor figure, but nevertheless, that's his role with Pocky and he's on the train. And just before we see him walk through this doorway, We see that I think Pocky himself is about to fire the gun. And just as we're sure he's about to pull the trigger, that's when it cuts to the train door and Tang opening the door abruptly. So that sound of the train door opening mimics what the gunfire would be in that moment. And in that sense, there's a real musicality to the editing and the cinematography. So a good start, a very fun start to – this marathon with Let the Bullets Fly. And our contemporary Chinese marathon will continue next week on the show as we get to the second of four movies in our lineup, the 2014 comic mystery Midnight After. It comes to us from Hong Kong director Fruit Chan. We will follow that with "Anne ways our time will come from 2017, which is set in Japanese occupied Hong Kong. And finally, this year's Ash's Purest White from Ja Janka. So a little bit of double dipping here, a movie we definitely both wanted to see that we missed when it hit select theaters yep. around the country. And we're going to be sure to see it as part of this marathon before the end of the year. All those titles are available to rent digitally on demand. Of course, we remind you, you can always check your local library. Do not forget about interlibrary loan. No. Love the interlibrary loan. More details on this and previous marathons at filmspotting.net slash
1: marathons. And Josh, that is our show. A full show indeed. If you still want more, head over to filmspotting.net and check out our archives. That's where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Also at filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking what complicated 2010s movie mentor – would you like to see in another film? To order film spotting T-shirts or other film spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net/shop. And to subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter, filmspotting.net/newsletter is the place to go. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter as well. Adam is at film spotting. I'm at Larson on film. Out in wide release this weekend: Zombieland Two, Double
3: Tap, and another sequel, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil. Josh, which one?
1: Well, oh, Maleficent! See, all I the knew way. You were going to say Maleficent. I mean, come on. When even the though original, the first Zombieland was a good movie, the first Zombieland was a good movie. I don't think it made my top ten list of that year. As Maleficent did the year it came out. I don't know if I'm going to make it to Mistress of Evil, though. I'm a little upset about that. I'm sure I'll catch up with it down the road. In limited release and here in
3: Chicago, we have to mention, again, the Chicago International Film Festival starts. You can visit filmspotting.net slash lists to see the list of movies that we are most interested in seeing at the festival. We shared those titles on last week's show. Again, filmspotting.net slash lists. And we have to mention... Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, a movie that at least according to what I saw on Twitter moments was a huge hit in New York over the weekend, sold out screenings all weekend. I'm not sure why. I'm glad that Bong Joon-ho's getting that much attention and this movie certainly is getting a lot of acclaim. Parasite was I think was it the Palme d'Or winner, Josh? Or was it just a big hit at
1: Cannes? I we don't know, know but, this stuff. Well, what I can tell you is just from observing the reactions. I feel like this is possibly the best reviewed movie of the year so far. It's certainly up there among the top three or five or so. So I can't wait to see it for myself. Yeah, it indeed did win. The Palm Dor as best picture at the most
3: recent Cannes Film Festival. And we do plan to see it and talk about it on next week's show.
1: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Disseau and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at trnty.edu. For film spotting, I'm Josh Larson, and I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
2: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
3: Film spotting is listener supported.